Okay, class, today we're going to talk about the history of Northern Ireland. Can anyone tell me what the Troubles are? Anyone? Anyone? Anybody but Brian? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Anybody But Brian. Today, we're going to take a break from economics to examine a sectarian conflict that's raged on for decades in Europe, pitting one person's religious terrorist against another's freedom fighter, like so many other conflicts around the globe. This, of course, is the situation in Northern Ireland. Now, the modern conflict in Northern Ireland, also known as the Troubles, began in the mid-1960s. Some mark it as starting with the Civil Rights March of Derry on October 5, 1968, and others, like author Jack Holland, say it began a little earlier, on May 7, 1966, with the murder of Matilda Gould in Belfast. However, like so many other tales of foreign influence and oppression, the conflict in Northern Ireland has a rich history with centuries' worth of context. Starting in the late 12th century, the Norman invasion of Ireland marked the beginning of more than 800 years of direct English rule and Irish resistance. Starting in 1177, Prince John Lackland was made the Lord of Ireland by his father, King Henry II of England, and in concert with this appointment was the start of local Irish resistance to English rule. Over the next 100 years, the Normans never held the whole of Ireland, as they attempted to cobble together alliances with local kings and warlords, um, but overall failing to unite the entire country. Moreover, by 1261, the weakening of the Normans had become apparent when Fenian McCarthy defeated the Norman army at the Battle of Callan, paving the way for another century of violence, as well as a chaotic situation that allowed many of the local Irish lords to win back large tracts of land that their families had lost since the beginning of the conquest and held with them since the war was over. Nevertheless, as the English Empire grew, their lust for Irish land continued. Following failed cultural assimilation during the English Reformation, attempts to conquer the Irish lordships into the Kingdom of Ireland spawned a new series of Irish military campaigns between 1534 and 1603. Furthermore, these skirmishes cemented a new vector of conflict, religion. Through the English policy of plantation, thousands of English and Scottish Protestant settlers arrived in Ireland and displaced the pre-plantation Catholic landholders. As the military and political defeat of Gaelic Ireland became more pronounced in the early 17th century, this sectarian conflict became a recurring theme in Irish history. By 1614, the overthrow of the Catholic majority in the Irish Parliament was realized principally through the creation of numerous new boroughs, which were dominated by these new English and Scottish Protestant settlers. By the end of the 17th century, non-Protestants, representing some 85% of Ireland's total population, were banned from the Irish Parliament. Protestant domination of Ireland was confirmed after two periods of war between Catholics and Protestants again in 1641 through 52, as well as 1689 through 1691. Political power thereafter rested entirely in the hands of a Protestant ascendancy minority, while Catholics and members of dissenting Protestant denominations suffered severe political and economic privatizations under the penal laws. Eventually, the Irish Parliament was abolished on January 1, 1801, in the wake of the Republican United Irishman Rebellion, and Ireland became a part of the new United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland under the provisions of the Acts of Union of 1800, where Catholics were not 
granted full rights until Catholic emancipation 30 years later. This cultural domination of the settling Protestants in Ireland was the foundation of the modern troubles. Underneath these religious denominations was a battle for land and representation. From the late 19th century, the majority of people living in Ireland wanted the British government to grant some form of self-rule to Ireland. Throughout this period in history, the Irish Nationalist Party sometimes held the balance of power in the House of Commons, a position from which it sought to gain home rule which would have given Ireland autonomy at least in internal affairs without breaking up the United Kingdom. Two bills granting home rule to Ireland were passed by that House of Commons, once in 1886 and once in 1893, each of which were eventually rejected by the House of Lords. In the early 20th century, uh, a third home rule bill was introduced by the Liberal Minority Government in 1912. This time, as World War I raged on, the group from the House of Commons was able to negotiate with the House of Lords to eventually pass the bill in 1914. Unfortunately, this heavily amended bill um, only allowed four counties of Ulster in Northern Ireland to vote them for themselves during internal matters, and it was only going to last for six years. This type of heavy struggle for limited rights really just fueled the continued tensions in Ireland uh, during World War I. Um, specifically during this time, Irish separatists, known as Irish nationalists and later Republicans, rejected this form of home rule entirely because it involved maintaining the connection with Britain. Eventually, revolutionaries like Thomas Clark, James Connolly, Patrick Pierce, and others initiated the 1916 Eastern Rising with the goal of creating a new, unified, free Ireland. Now, the Easter Rising likely merits its own episode all to itself, uh, but the impact of the uprising eventually led to the Anglo-Irish War and the fourth and final Home Rule Bill, the Government of Ireland Act 1920, which is what partitioned the Ireland into Northern Ireland, the six Northeast counties, and the Republic of Ireland, of which it is today. From that partition through the mid-1960s, successive Unionist prime ministers and the Unionist establishment practiced what is generally considered a policy of discrimination against the nationalist Catholic minorities in matters from employment, housing, and public representation through gerrymandering. For example, Catholics were barred from high-paying jobs in Belfast shipyards and were displaced from more modern public housing, resulting in increased marginalization of the community. However, despite these institutional barriers, Catholic citizens began to resist through both political and violent means. Catholic Labor Party leaders such as Austin Curry and Jerry Fitt were able to win seats in Parliament in 1967. Concurrently, a small group of Catholic community leaders in Belfast and Derry also began to more widely participate in the previously defunct Irish Republican Army. These new leaders began to demand civil rights, including the abolition of the Special Powers Act, which allowed the police to detain individuals in Northern Ireland without trial, um, as well as protesting other fair housing policies. These demands from both political and paramilitary groups eventually manifest themselves with a March for Civil Rights in October of 1968 in Derry, in which the Royal Ulster Police blocked the march route and assaulted unarmed protesters, including splitting open the head of elected official Jerry Fitt on live television. In response, the largely Catholic crowd began to throw stones and in certain cases Molotov cocktails at the police officers. While many blamed the escalation of violence on the IRA, who was working as security during the march, 
The capturing of violence on television thrust the issue into the homes of millions of British families. In response, the Unionist government promised to roll back the Special Powers Act, detainment, housing discrimination, and other issues over the coming years. Nevertheless, all the public saw was continued violence against minority Catholic protesters. On January 1, 1969, leaders of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association held a march from Belfast to Derry, meant to mimic uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's march from Selma, uh, but they were met with violent assault from Protestants with little or no protection from the police. Unfortunately, this violence only begot more violence. While more civil rights activists were elected to Parliament in Belfast and Derry, violent riots broke out in the summer of 1969 with dozens of buildings burning to the ground. This level of violence prompted the intervention of the British government to include the armed patrol of both Belfast and Derry streets by the British military. This new military element added a higher level of volatility to the situation. In many cases, these military units were highly specialized uh, warfare tried units inside the British military that were not trained for normal policing. This type of confluence of events eventually culminated in the Bloody Sunday Massacre of January 30, 1972, where British soldiers murdered 28 unarmed protesters in Derry. At this time, the Provisional Irish Republican Army, which had split from the official IRA in 1969, became uninterested in any solution short of British withdrawal and Irish unification. Whatever moral compass or loose rules both the IRA and their opposing Ulster Volunteer Force had established prior to Bloody Sunday began to rapidly dissolve after the incident. From March 1972 through September 1972, there were 9,536 shooting incidents, resulting in the death of over 260 civilians as well as over 120 soldiers and policemen. This prompted an attempt by the British to restore self-government to Northern Ireland. The first major attempt was the 1973 Sunningdale Agreement, which provided for both a devolved power-sharing administration and a role for the Irish government in the internal affairs of Northern Ireland. Together with the UK and Irish governments, just three Northern Ireland political parties participated in these Sunningdale talks, the Ulster Unionist Party, the Nationalist, Social Democratic and Labour Party, and the Centre Ground Alliance Party. The Democratic Unionist Party was wholly opposed to the Sunningdale agreements and did not participate. Representatives of the quote-unquote extreme loyalist and Republican paramilitaries were also not invited. Sunningdale's political institutions actually collapsed very quickly in early 1974 as they were toppled by the Ulster Workers' Council strike, a near-insurrection spearheaded by a coalition of unionists and loyalists that effectively brought Northern Ireland to a standstill. Although this was ultimately a failure, uh, Sunningdale contained the seeds of a much more intricate and successful Good Friday Agreement 25 years later. At this time in the early 70s, as the cycle of violence escalated post-Sunningdale, further efforts were made by successive UK governments to devise a political settlement, but only one acceptable to the parties that they considered legitimate and nonviolent, essentially meaning they were excluding any nationalist groups that were associated with the IRA. This type of dialogue is what brought around the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985, which was an attempt to achieve a political accord through participating moderate parties to resolve the Irish question. It gave the Irish government an advisory role in the affairs of Northern Ireland and determined there would be no change in Northern Ireland's constitutional status, in other words, no Irish unification, 
without the consent of its people, which the UK honestly knew that was pretty unlikely (laughs) due to the ratio of Protestants versus Catholics in the country as a whole. Nevertheless, the treaty broadly alienated the Unionist community, which opposed Irish involvement and rejected the proposal for a devolved power-sharing government, which makes sense when you think about it. If you are in the majority and hold all the cards, why would you want to try to compromise that? Among the major parties in Northern Ireland, only the SDLP and the Alliance Party supported this agreement. Additionally, Sinn Féin, what many called the political wing of the IRA, was as vociferously opposed to the agreement as the Unionists. The party had grown in prominence and influence since Republican hunger striker Bobby Stans was elected as a member of parliament on a wave of popular support shortly before he died in 1981. Nevertheless, this election showed that Sinn Féin had the power of political engagement and led to the adoption of a strategy known as the Armalite and the Ballot Box, in which the IRA would continue the armed struggle while Sinn Féin contested Northern Ireland's elections. Yet as the violence continued over coming years, the support of the very people Sinn Féin represented began to wane. In the general elections of 1989, the party's vote collapsed, polling at only 1.2%. With depressed political support and increased British military presence at home, the IRA began to orchestrate attacks throughout England, including the bombing of a cabinet meeting at 10 Downing Street and the bombing of the London subway in 1991, as well as an attack on the Baltic Exchange in April of 1992. It became clear in the early 90s that there would be no serious peace talks unless there was a ceasefire between the Ulster Volunteer Force, the Ulster Defense Force, and the IRA. Crucially, when the IRA announced this ceasefire in 1994, mainstream Republican leaders had recognized that most people simply wanted an end to the violence, and true cross-party talks began in earnest in 1996. In almost all quarters of the conflict, a combination of political realism and war weariness really cleared the path to negotiation. Additionally, President of the United States Bill Clinton took an active personal role, appointing veteran U.S. Senator George Mitchell as the chair of the talks, eventually concluding in the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. While the agreement remains in effect today, the permeable border between Ireland and Northern Ireland is being challenged by ongoing Brexit negotiations. There are over 200 points of entry between the two regions, and the underlying tensions still exist, waiting to be ignited by a new political matchbook. Still, the fact that the relative peace has endured over the last 20 years gives me personally a great sense of optimism. Most people understand that the current arrangement is far from perfect, but as we examine the myriad of conflicts around the globe, so many of which seem to clash against religion and fair representation uh, due to foreign influence in elections and historical injustices, we all need to hold on to that hope for peace, I think, just to get through the day. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode of Anybody But Brian. Uh, If you're interested in the troubles in more detail, there's a great book called Hope Against History uh, by the author Jack Holland, which I mentioned a little earlier in the podcast. Uh, It's very detailed about some of the specific agreements, negotiations, as well as a lot of a breakdown of the violence that occurred, not necessarily in graphic detail of the events, but much more around the statistical elements of how many shootings and bombings occurred each year. Uh, which is really flabbergasting when you look at it in retrospect. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode, and uh, I'll be posting a new one in the next two weeks. So thanks, and have a great day.